Good morning, everyone. Let's gather ourselves. I need to get, have y'all ever seen those meditation bells that sit on pillows? You know, I need to bring, I've got one in my office. I need to bring it in here. We can all start with a little quiet. But glad to see you all this morning. I heard that you had a good morning last week with Mary. Um, Mary is such a great teacher, and so I'm glad that she was able to fill in for me. I think that that was the only week this school year that I'm going to be gone on a Wednesday morning. So, but even if I have to be gone one other time, then Mary's great. She'll fill in for me again. Um, so let's open with a prayer on this All Saints Day. Um, let's invite memories of those we love but see no longer, people who we know watch over us and what we do. Let's hold that memory in our minds with just a moment of silence, and then we'll say prayer together. Almighty God, you have knit together your elect in one communion and fellowship in the mystical body of your Son, Christ our Lord. Give us grace so to follow your blessed saints in all virtuous and godly living, that we may come to those ineffable joys that you have prepared for those who truly love you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who with you in the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, in glory everlasting. Amen. So this morning, we are going into chapter four, right? Okay, thank you. I've been wrong as often as I've been right, so just want to make sure. Chapter four of Luke is a big chapter. So last week in chapter three, that action in the chapter was not quite as full as it is in chapter four. And so we've got a lot to do today, and so just hang tight. In chapter four, the chapter is divided really into three sections, and it's a good way for us to kind of hang our hats on each little part of the chapter because a lot happens in each section. But we really move through temptation, through rejection, and into healing in this chapter. And it's not only what happens to Jesus, but it's what happens within him, right? Jesus is doing these things, but it's also happening to him as well. So let's put this into context. So far in the first three chapters of Luke, Jesus has had a miraculous, or Mary has had a miraculous conception. Jesus has had a miraculous birth. Jesus has been presented to the temple, and we've seen that people have recognized something special about this child, and he has become a teacher, right? At age 12, he was teaching in the temple, and he likely continued to be that kind of teaching presence. Even though we don't have those explicit stories in Luke, it's likely that for the next 15 to 20 years, Jesus continued to teach. What we saw last week is Jesus' baptism. Now, a quick note that in Luke, it is not specific or specified that John baptized Jesus. I don't know what, I, I should have listened to what Mary told you all, um, but we'll just go with whatever I think. Um, in Mark and Matthew, there is an explicit story of John baptizing Jesus. In Luke, although the story is very similar, John is not a part of that baptism. What Luke says is that when Jesus had been baptized, right? That's it. 
There's no exchange between Jesus and John. It just simply says he was. And then it goes on to give the genealogy. It's important for us to note the order that the genealogy comes before we get into chapter four. So in Matthew, which is the other gospel where we see a lengthy genealogy, the genealogy comes right at the beginning, right? Jesus, before he's even born, is connected all the way back to the patriarchs, right? All the way back to David, Moses, Adam. Come on in. You're here, don't be sorry. Come on in. In Luke, we get a lot of story before we get the genealogy. Jesus is born, Jesus is sort of grown up and teaching and baptized before we ever get the genealogy. That's not an accident. It's not like Luke was, you know, down on the animal skins and then all of a sudden he was like, oh crap, I forgot to tell everybody where he came from, right? That's not what happened. It's a literary technique because of what happens with the temptation. It's because Jesus is human that Jesus can be tempted. Theologically speaking, this is not what most of us grow up hearing. And if we're honest, I bet most of us in this room, we really like the divine, all-knowing, miraculous Jesus. We like, it's not that we dislike the human Jesus, but not quite as powerful in our experience as the divine, holy Jesus. But for Luke, if we're really looking at the way Luke tells this story, separate from the other gospel writers, he is emphasizing Jesus's humanity. Jesus is baptized. The voice says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And then you get this whole list. And if you noticed in the genealogy, it says that Jesus was understood to be Joseph's son, right? Luke's even giving a little nod to the biology lesson that is happening here, which is remember the immaculate conception, right? So Joseph's the dad, kinda, right? But Luke still puts the genealogy through Joseph goes all the way back to Adam, the son of God. Did you notice that in the end of chapter three? And then this son of God goes out to be tempted. Jesus's humanity is a real thing. And so when Jesus goes out to be tempted, do not receive this story as if it's a tacit little something that Jesus has got to do but that he's never actually tempted. It is important for us to understand that Jesus is truly tempted in this passage, right? The way that Luke writes this story, it's almost as if the temptations are internal, right? Now, when I was a kid reading this story, I can remember thinking that it, it really does sound like, um, it could sound like Jesus is walking and talking with the devil, right? But it can also sound like Jesus is out there in the wilderness and he is tired and he is exhausted and he is being tempted within himself to not do what it is that he's called to do. A word on the wilderness. 
When I was a kid and I was hearing these stories, wilderness to me was a forest, right? Because I grew up going to my grandparents' cabin in North Carolina and the wild was sort of this dense forest. Even the wild for Texans may look a little different than what the actual wilderness near the River Jordan is. So if you've been to the Holy Land, you've seen this. But for those of you who haven't, the wilderness is a desert. There is nothing. It is sand and rocks, full exposure. And so when Jesus is out there in the wilderness, he is likely certainly without food, almost certainly without much to drink, if anything. And the sun is beating down on him all day long. No shade, no rest, nothing. I don't know about you, but it's always easier for me to eat the bag of chips when I am tired, right? <laughs> like I can resist cake at 8 a.m. You know, I'm good, no problem. But by the time it's 10.30 and my children have exhausted me, and you know, it's like, wow, that looks really good, right? I mean, temptation's real. And so for Jesus, it's that same sort of experience here where temptation has worn him down and he has shown all of these good things. And it's likely that the temptation that he experiences is very large, right? We have three examples of questions that are tempting Jesus. Remember, this is just a story, right? Luke's just writing a story of temptation. It's likely that Jesus was wrestling with this the whole time he was there. So the question that we might ask is, could Jesus have succumbed to this temptation? And I think the answer has to be yes, because choice matters. I think that we like that Jesus didn't have a choice, right? That God had a plan, that Jesus was here to simply follow the plan, and that Jesus did what he was supposed to do the end, never wavering. That is not really good theology. It feels good to us when stuff, when bad things happen, right? That age-old question, why do bad things happen to good people, right? For many people, a comfort when bad things happen is that it's part of God's plan, right? God may have an idea or a hope or a dream for us, but we choose how to respond to our life experiences. God does not make us choose. If God did make us choose, then we do not have free choice. And theologically speaking, if we don't have free choice, then everything bad in the world comes from God. That for me is the starting place. I believe, and we'll get to sort of the demonic stuff here in a minute, I believe evil is a real thing, right? It's not just a, a feeling or a bad idea. I really do believe that we have got this tug within us of good and evil, but that's within us. God is good. If there is evil in the world, we are the ones who choose it. That's the idea behind Adam and Eve, is that we can choose the bad. If God makes us do everything, then the bad actually does come from God. 
not from us. And so in this moment, Jesus's humanity is real, and so are his choices to not succumb to temptation. Before I go any further, do I need to say that another way? Or do you have a question about what about that, that I might unpack that idea a bit more? Because that's a big idea. And that's an idea that for many of us might be new in some way. Yeah. So the question is, is Satan not actually a real person standing and walking next to Jesus? I think that the idea of evil embodiment makes sense. And so for when it is helpful, it is not wrong to imagine Satan as a person. But that's in the same way that it's not wrong to at least in some way imagine God as a person. But God is not a person like us. The personification of God is helpful in an instructive way, but it does not mean that it is fully true. And so in the same way, Satan or even an angel, right, as a personification of a human body might be helpful for us in art or in a story, but it's limited. It is not a complete truth. And so I can't say, none of us know if there was actually an embodiment there. I mean, we, we've just had a few chapters of stories with Gabriel showing up and talking to people, right? And so if an angel can kind of show up and talk, absolutely, we can have an evil like Satan show up and talk. But I think it's important for all of us to expand what we think truth really is so that God does not have to look like a person, right? The Michelangelo-style God reaching out to Adam. That's all right, except that's not everything. And so long as we keep that in check, it's no problem for us to think that Jesus was actually having a conversation. In my experience, though, I've never had the devil show up and walk with me and articulate a temptation in front of me right? For me, it's always internal. And so it's more helpful for me to read this story as an internal struggle, because that's my experience. And so that's what I offer to you, is that it, it is important to me to really focus mostly in my life. You, you do what you need. But in my life, the human Jesus has a bigger impact on me because I am human. And so when I live into what I think is true, that Jesus was a true, full human person, and he made these choices to be faithful to God's hope for him, that's a much bigger inspiration to me. But I think it's important that the idea of Messiah and kingship is recognized here, right? Jesus in chapter four is actually going through this process himself because he's trying to figure out what his Messiahship is going to be, right? We've noted this before, but there are plenty of other people who have claimed kingship, plenty of other people who have claimed Messiahship, right? I mean, 
no, no less than Herod himself, right? A, a character who looms large in the story. Plenty of other teachers are claiming the same stuff as Jesus. And so I think Jesus is working through what is he going to do? And I have to, I always say God's bigger than we ever think. And so we know this whole story, right? We know where this is going and how it ends. I have to think that it could have differed in some way based on Jesus's choices and Jesus would have still accomplished his task. And so the specifics of every single decision he makes are less important than the arc of the whole story, right? Jesus has come to teach and proclaim to die for us. How that happens is less important than that it happened. And so in this kind of story moment, Jesus is actually having to pick his path. And how's he going to do this? Because what, in essence, the, Satan is tempting him to behave as a Messiah in a way that we know he will not. Jesus will, in a second, cast a demon out of a person, right? He will do many miracles. Why are those miracles the only ones he can do? We have to say they aren't. He could do anything else. He could, in essence, do something so shocking and huge that everybody would just fall to their knees and say, you must be the Son of God. But he doesn't. And so we have to ask, why? The answer to the why for me is rooted in our choice. We choose this or we don't. And I think Jesus is choosing or not in the same way that we are. We know in the garden, right, Jesus says, take this cup from me, but if it's your will, I'll do it. So he doesn't want to, but he does. And that is huge for me as a person. I mean, I hope it is for you too. We're all faced with choices of who we want to be. We are not victims to our choices. They're ours. And we can make good ones or not. Jesus made some good ones. And I think that because he could have chosen not to, it empowers me more to make the good choices because I'm not a victim. All right. Any other questions or thoughts before we move on? Literarily, what Luke is doing here is hearkening back to other moments in Jewish stories. We are seeing a tempter tempt a son of God. Where else does that happen? The Garden of Eden. Okay. So anyone hearing this story would have linked this back to the tempter in Eden, right? Luke literally just said, Adam, the son of God, and sent Jesus into the wilderness, right? Jesus, the son of God, is tempted. Same thing, except what's different. Jesus doesn't eat that apple, right? Luke has, in, oh, I just got chills. That was good stuff. Um, <laughs> Luke is telling this story to show that Jesus is undoing the wrong, right? That is not an accident. 
Adam was put in the garden and Adam and Eve together make a bad choice and they're cast out. Jesus is now in this space again. He can rewrite that wrong and he does because he resists the temptation. And that launches him into his ministry in a way that gives him the opportunity to undo all of that on our behalf. See how he's setting up this theological argument? In addition, he's in the wilderness. When did we hear about another wilderness? Moses and the Israelites, right? Again, not an accident. And so Jesus is undoing multiple mistakes in the story of God with humanity, right? Adam and Eve in the garden, Jesus undoes it. Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness where they are tempted not to believe in God to take them into the promised land. And so they are punished for it. Jesus undoes it. So within just a few chapters, we've got all the miraculous arrival stuff of Jesus, but we've also got him owning the opportunity to remake the mistakes of our human past, and he does. Lastly, just to hit on the humanity of Jesus here, in the story of our discipleship, so let's get personal, for each of us, we've been called to be disciples of Christ. In order to own our discipleship, we all have to, in some way, deal with our demons. This is another reason why I like reading this story as if Jesus is wrestling with his demons, because we, in our own way, have to wrestle with them. In order to become disciples of Jesus, it's not just simple words, right? We, we have, we live in a culture where some believe that following Jesus is reduced down to simply saying the right magic spell, right? There's nothing wrong with that, except it's not magic, right? You can't just simply cast a spell and all of a sudden you're it. Belief is so much bigger than just a set of words. Belief is something that we come to over time. It is a journey that is deep. And that journey starts with our own wrestling. When Jesus wrestles with these demons, it's like what we are supposed to do as disciples. Except that for many of us, we don't ever do that, right? We like to resist or think about demons as things that we can just overcome if we ignore them, rather than going right at their face and wrestling. I liken this, um, some of you may know this, many of you may not, that when, you, when we are trained to become priests, we go through a thing called CPE, clinical pastoral education. CPE is a, a period of time we spend most often as an intern in a hospital. And as an intern in the hospital, although we are receiving the opportunity to, in intense situations, care for people, be present with people. That's not really the point of CPE. The point of CPE is to have experiences that cut to our 
weaknesses, our own temptations, right? We are supposed to deal with our own stuff. And when we wrestle with our stuff, we can go through this kind of process and heal in some way from our own demons so that when we are in roles like this with people like you, we don't sit down with you when you have cancer or sit down with you when you lose a loved one and fall apart because we can be available. We've kind of worked through our own pain so we can be present to yours. And this, this was something that happened to me very intensely right away. The first week I was an intern, so I'm 23 years old, right, as an intern in the hospital. There is a woman who rushes her friend into the ER. They had been out shopping at the mall. They'd gotten in their car. They were literally driving on their way home. And she, in the passenger seat of the car, has a heart attack. And so she runs her right to the hospital. This woman, they work on her for 45 minutes. I'm down there with the woman who brought her in. I'm going back and forth to the room where they're doing chest compressions and trying their best because this woman is only in her mid-40s. And turns out this woman was the same age at the time as my mother. And as I'm standing in the room, they call the time of death. I'd never seen someone die in front of me before. Right? I had seen a body, but I had never sort of watched a person in front of me die. And so watching that happen was in itself profound, but then linking it to the fact that that could be my mother, right? I mean, it's one thing if you lose a parent after a very long life, but as a, someone in their early 40s to die on a table when they'd just been shopping at the mall is a shocking thing. And so that's the kind of thing I worked through with this group, because if you don't wrestle with the things that could bring you down, you can't ever really truly be present with someone else whenever they're going through their own pain. That kind of thing really is a temptation, right? To be self-centered. If we as disciples submit to this kind of work where we truly wrestle with demons, we can come out the other side prepared to be able to spread the good news in a way that makes that good news more real. And I think that's what Jesus is really doing in the first part of this chapter. So any questions about the temptation part before we move on? So what Karen's saying is, if you look at verse, is it 13? When the devil had finished every test, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. That's a great thing to note. On the one hand, it's good to note because it is something that happens throughout our whole life. It's not like we've passed through temptation. We will never be tempted again, right? That is not the case. It just we might have passed through a particular kind of temptation and we've got plenty more to come. They'll just be different. This is also, though, a literary move on Luke's part because later on, in Luke's telling of Jesus' story, the devil comes back and it is not an accident that Luke brings the devil back in the story with intentionality. 
and the devil will come back, if you just had to pick, when's the devil back in this story? When is the opportune time? Before the crucifixion, and how is the devil personified? Judas. So this is Luke creating a narrative that is real good. Remember, Luke is the storyteller. Luke does not really waste words. So when he drops a little nugget, like until an opportune time, he's not going to forget. That will connect to something in the future. So when we get in the spring, closer to that Easter season in this study, and Judas personifies that devil spirit, he's been waiting for the chance. And of course, even the way we use language, right, creates a personification of the spirit that is really not whole, but, you know, we're human, we're fallible. All right, so we'll move on to rejection. So Jesus goes through this whole experience. Baptized resists true temptation, and then he's ready. He had to do those things before he really began his ministry. Then where does he go to kind of mark the beginning of his ministry? His hometown, right? Which, I mean, obviously he should have known that's not gonna work. So <laughs> Jesus goes back to Nazareth, his hometown, and he goes to the synagogue. And one of those things that we may not know is the way that synagogues worked at the time is any teacher could sort of get up and teach, right? This is almost, we as Episcopalians like the structure of our service, right? We like it to start on time and we like it to end on time. And if it ends like at 57 minutes, even better, right? Um, I got, I remember graduating from seminary and had a professor tell me, just remember, the favorite priest at any parish is the one who preaches the shortest sermons, right? So it's a, you know, we, we like our structure, right? I mean, I can remember um, as a kid, if we were a minute late starting, it's like we're, you know, we are late. Um, that is not the case at a synagogue in this time period. It is more akin, how many of you have been to historic black churches, right? Where it is, it kinda starts and it kinda goes until it's sorta done, right? And I mean, it, it doesn't start at a particular time, although it's kind of around that time. And it certainly doesn't end at a particular time, right? I mean, you are lucky if it's three hours this morning, right? Sometimes it can be much longer. And the way that that works, there is, there is a, an acknowledgement that the Spirit, we are, in essence, invoking the Spirit's presence here. We cannot control the Spirit. We can simply make space. And then the Spirit will speak. And so as a clergy person, I have been with friends to either funerals or prayer services or anything like that at historically black churches. And if I were a caller or they know who I am, first off, I am sitting up front and at some point in the service will be invited to speak. And the invitation to speak, it, this shocked me the first time this happened because, you know, you know pastor, would you like to speak? Uh, 
on what? I mean, I, you know, it, I have no idea what's happening. Um, and, and that's sort of what the synagogue is, right? There are teachers among them, Jesus being one of them, and he would have had the opportunity to just teach. And people would have just waited to see what these teachers said. So in this scene, Jesus gets up and he opens up the Isaiah scroll and he reads this fantastic passage from Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Great stuff. And then, after he rolls it up, what's he say? Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Dang. His teaching becomes an opportunity for him to proclaim his purpose. So he uses this Isaiah passage to articulate his purpose to the Jews in the synagogue in his hometown. Quite possibly where he grew up sitting in that synagogue, gets up and claims the fulfillment of the passage, and then what is everyone's reaction? Excuse me. <laughs> now, aren't you Joseph's son, right? Because, I mean, we remember you. You're like little JJ, right? Who grew up here, and why in the world would you think that you're anything this special, right? Then Jesus starts with gracious words. And they do say that they appreciate his grace-filled words. But then when they give this sort of reaction, like, really, who are you? Jesus takes the knife and twists. And he says, here's, here's the kicker. You people are not the people that God is sending me to save. You are self-righteous. You are self-centered. You are not the ones that God is here to save. Everyone is welcome. And they go nuts, bananas, right? Because they have created a system in which you check these boxes, you follow this path, you keep the laws, and then God's grace pours down on you. But instead, what Jesus is saying is grace is for every person, not just the people you like, not just the people who have checked the boxes, every person. And I love what N.T. Wright says in his commentary. He equates this to someone in Europe preaching about the redemptive opportunity of Adolf Hitler in World War II. He is right. It is very easy for us to extend God's grace a little, right? If I preach in this church that God's grace is for our friends who aren't here, that's all right, right? When we would like them. If, we, if I preach that God's grace is for the people who have been really mean to us in the last week, some of us would probably say, okay, that's still okay. 
right? Because sure, God's grace, we get it. If I start preaching about the person who killed a kid in South Dallas, if I talk about the people who commit gross atrocities, if I talk about the man who just ran over the bikers in New York, that might go too far. Intellectually, perhaps, we know it's true, but we don't like that at all. Because our humanity says there are things you can do that ultimately takes you out of the game, right? You can do enough bad that you are out for good. And Jesus says, no, nothing you do can take you out of the game. It is still up to you, right? Grace is free, but it's not cheap. You still have to respond, right? It is a give and take. It is true love, right? That is reciprocal. But everybody, no matter what, can receive it. And the people go bananas. It flies in the face of everything that they have created to differentiate the good from the bad. And so they take him out and attempt to throw him over a cliff. Note, what did the tempter just do in the beginning of this chapter? But take him to a precipice and say, jump and God will save you. It is, again, not an accident that the people here take him to a cliff and try to throw him over, which just, by the way, is like a, a crazy thing to say, because if you've ever been there, it's not like there are just cliffs all over the place. Like, you know, where do you, if I, if I told you like, you know, take her over and throw her off a cliff in Dallas, like, where are you going, right? Where is your, where's the cliff you're throwing them off of? Um, so, it's not that it necessarily happened that way as much as the intent of the people was that he be killed. Do not miss that, right? Already, in minutes of Jesus' public ministry, people want him dead. This does not bode well for him long term. And we know what will happen. And Luke is already showing us that this will catch Jesus at some point. But today, Jesus just walks through the crowd and he's gone. So any question about this rejection moment before we move on to the healing? After Jesus's rejection in Nazareth, He's got to relocate. And so he leaves his hometown and he sets up shop in Capernaum. He goes to Galilee. And again, just a reminder, at any study Bible, you've got a map. And in, in the front of the N.T. Wright book, there is a map. And if we do a really quickie sort of look at Israel, which kind of is like this, with the... Mediterranean over here. I haven't drawn a map for you all yet, so just give me a second. Okay. You've got ocean over here. This is the Mediterranean. 
And then you've got other countries. You've got Lebanon up here. You've got Syria over here. You've got Jordan over here. This is real. Jerusalem is kind of in the middle. Remember we talked about it's like a parfait? So you've got nothing but desert down here. And you've got Jerusalem here. You've got the Dead Sea kind of right over here with the Jordan River that goes all the way up to Galilee. Nazareth is over here. Capernaum is right up here. So this is the Sea of Galilee. I know you're far away, sorry. But if this is Israel, Nazareth and Capernaum are both up top, the northern area of the country, where it is decently lush. And he's relocated from Nazareth, which is a bit closer to the coast. It's not coastal, but it's at least a little farther to the coast, to the Mediterranean over here. And he's gone a bit more inland, up toward where you find Damascus, right? Syria and other countries. So when Jesus, later on in the gospel, travels outside of Israel, his traveling is actually quite easy because he's way up in the northeast corner of Israel. And just remember, Galilee to Jerusalem, you're talking about 100 miles. So it's not a big space. It's not too hard to travel that entire populated area of Israel. It's not, you know, an hour or two travel, but it's also doable. So Jesus goes from Nazareth over to Capernaum. Capernaum is just a fishing village, right? The Sea of Galilee is a beautiful lake. It's really a lake. And it's a beautiful lake, very deep. And it's, in essence, it's the, uh, I want to say crater, mountains, and then they form a thing. It's whatever. Um, geologist, right? Or whatever. Uh, so it's, it's very deep because the mountains come up around it. It's not a lake like, say, in Florida, where I'm from, that's kind of shallow. It's got huge depth, and that makes it a great fishing lake, right? Big fish can grow, can thrive in this lake. And so fishermen will fish the Sea of Galilee and live in little, little places, little houses in Capernaum. So Jesus hops over to Capernaum and begins to teach there. In Capernaum, in the end of chapter 4, he goes through multiple miraculous healing experiences. The first is when he meets a man who is possessed by a demon. The possession of this man is something that we could talk about. I don't really have time to get into this, except to say that it, modern people will be tempted, like us, to read this story as metaphorical, right? Or to apply some kind of modern understanding of psychosis on this man right? So we certainly know that there are things, sometimes drug-induced, um, sometimes mental breaks where people can, you know, in, in our own parlance, sort of lose their mind, right? And act like they're possessed. I don't think that's a wrong way to read this. 
But I also want to submit to you that reading it as literal is also perfectly right. I tend to lean into a more literal reading of this because I am not, this could be, so it's taken me an hour and 20 minutes. To, I mean, it's taken me 50 minutes to get to a Catholic joke. Um, <laughs> being raised Catholic, this idea of sort of evil spirits is a very real thing. And angels, I mean, all of it, right? I mean, I, I'm very okay with all of this being real, right? It may not be the way that we have articulated it over history, but possession, even though I've never witnessed it like this, I'm okay with possession being a real thing. And so demons being kind of real, right? This, this evil embodiment that has developed in the world, I'm okay with that. And so however you wanna read this, no judgment, right? You can read this as psychosis. You can read this as true demonic possession. Either way, I think works. But the one thing that I think is really important in this story, Luke intentionally identifies this demon as knowing who Jesus is. That to me is the, is the very important note. When Jesus gets to Capernaum, and he meets a man with an unclean demon, the demon cries out in a loud voice, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Although people have recognized Jesus as special, this is the first time someone has said, I know who you are. You are the Holy One. The implication being you are the Messiah. The first person to say those words is a demon. Again, not an accident. What Luke is really saying here is that there are powers in the world that recognize God. And we as humans often don't. Here Jesus is surrounded by people who have seen his teachings, his works, and yet they try to throw him off a cliff. Then when Jesus meets the demon, the demon sees him for who he is. We are often the ones who are most opaque. We are the, often the ones who ignore the truth of evil at our own peril. And what Luke is really trying to push on us, even in an implication, is that if we saw with the clarity of this evil, we would also see Jesus for who he is, as the Holy One of God. So Jesus immediately rebukes the demon, casts him out, and people are amazed. Jesus goes on to Simon's mother-in-law's house and cures her of a terrible fever. It's important in a literary sense that Jesus has done something truly otherworldly, right? Casting out a demon 
and done something so very normal, heal a fever, both miraculously. So God's miraculous presence to us is not always sensational with demon possession. It can also be super normal, what we need right now. For us to read the story, I think it's important that God is not only concerned with the biggest stuff in the world. God is very concerned with you and your little stuff, right? Your fevers, your sadness, your pain. It does not have to be global. It does not have to be supernatural. It can be boring and normal, and if it hurts, God cares. And I think that's a powerful thing to read out of this chapter because most of us are not dealing with global tragedy today in our life. Yet for each one of us, we've got a little pain. We've got a struggle. We've got something going on that is very hard. And God cares about your hard too. At the end of this chapter, Jesus has done a number of things that have been perceived as miraculous that are starting to draw people to him. And what Luke is setting up is what will happen next in chapter 5. Jesus will start to call his disciples. Chapter 4 sets up Jesus as a big deal. And people are starting to come toward him. In fact, we can see that when Jesus leaves and goes away from Capernaum at the end of chapter 4, it is very likely that he's trying not to have Capernaum sacked with all of these visitors coming to see this man, Jesus. He doesn't want Capernaum to be hurt because people want to see him. So he kind of goes away to some other place that is deserted where the people can find him and begin to learn. Next, Jesus will take some of that popularity and begin to identify certain people that he wants to be his closest followers. And it's important for us to note ahead of that moment that Jesus is not calling his disciples in the void, right? He is not some unknown random guy walking down the side of the lake who says to a fisherman, follow me. In essence, he has become wildly popular so that when he walks up to these fishermen and says, follow me, they feel the honor of being differentiated from all these other people who love Jesus. That's where I will stop for chapter four. Any thoughts or questions in our final few minutes? (laughs) The way you like to describe Lebanon and Israel is like Dallas and Fort Worth being at war. Right, I mean, I can remember being up here and you can stand in a place. It's very near where Jesus gave his Sermon on the Mount where you can actually see, like, look over there, that's Syria. Look over there, that's Lebanon. So it is very small and very tight. And we can, if you want to, at some point, get into kind of modern Mideast politics, which is something I love. Um, so we can, we can hop into that if you want to at some point. Um, no time today, but...
Hold on, Nancy. Oh, last week? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, it was so fun. Oh, stop it. Stop it. Um, it, was, it was really, really fun. Thank you for praying for me. Um, so here's, here's what I think is... I'd never been on the floor of... So for those of you who missed it, I was at the House of Representatives last week and was the guest chaplain to the House. Um, and it, apparently this happens once or twice a week. They'll have a guest chaplain in that session. And so maybe six or eight a month will kind of come in as guests. It looks like probably half the guests are just D.C. clergy, people who can kind of get there pretty easily. Um, and the other half tend to be people like me who will just cancel whatever I had and fly up to D.C. and do it. Um, and so being on the floor was really neat. I'd never been on the floor. I'd been in the gallery before, but never on the floor. Um, walking around those back hallways and seeing the secret little offices. And um, Jeb Henserling, who is a member of St. Michael, who just yesterday announced that he's not going to be up, going to uh, go for re-election, um, invited me up and then walked me around. And of course, at this point, um, because Jeb is Republican, Republicans are in control of the House, had access to all the sort of special things. Um, and so there are little balconies that are, exist and prayer rooms and stuff. It was, it was a really neat experience. But my favorite thing that happened, I had, I had that morning I'd gone to the White House for a tour and I had put my phone on vibrate just so it wouldn't ring. And I was meeting a couple people in between that and the um, Capitol building. And so I just never turned it back on, the ringer back on, but it was on vibrate. As I'm standing at the dais, oh, the other thing that I thought was really neat, they said that middle podiums, I walked in and I, I hadn't been there since I was a kid. And I said, this room is small. Um, and I, it looks huge on TV. And then I, then I said, where is the State of the Union address? And they said, it's in here. And I said, there's no way that the State of the Union address is in this room. It is only nine rows deep. Nine. So, I mean, it, doesn't it seem much bigger on TV? And they said, well, we add chairs. And I said, okay. Um, so that middle podium is only for guests. And so the pro tem, the speaker pro tem, um, was kind of walking me around and saying, this is this and this is that. And he said, it's only for guests. So basically, if you're not a guest chaplain or a head of state, nobody speaks from this podium. So I was like, all right. <laughs> um, so anyway, when I, so as I was standing there um, behind the chair waiting to be introduced, I guess it had gone live and they had begun the introduction that, you know, calling it to order. My phone in my pocket explodes. I mean, it's like, <laughs> and I'm, I'm standing there behind the chair, like, <laughs> um, I can't do anything about it. I'm not going to answer my phone, you know, while I'm standing there on the floor. And so I move over to the podium. I'm giving the entire prayer. My phone is like this in my pocket. It's crazy. So by the time I finally sit down and look, it's all my stupid friends. They're like, we see you. You know, we see you on the and multiple voicemails from people who are like, you going to answer your phone? No, I'm going to call again. They call again, answer. That's what friends are for. No. No, she did not call. So, yes. So, uh, if you're invited to do the prayer, a few things happen. You can't specify, you can't say anything more than God, right? So, you, I can't say Jesus. Um, although I kind of worked it in a little bit, but you only can have 150 words is the maximum, which is nothing. 
You ever, you know, I mean, most preachers haven't even gotten to their sermon by the time you're, you know, 300 words in. So 150 words was it. Mine was a little long, but I figured it was okay. And you have to submit it ahead of time and it get approved. So the, what was written was, I mean, the prayer. And they say in the instructions, you cannot say anything else. So you cannot like thank the representative who invited you. You cannot, you know, like, hi, mom. I mean, you can't do anything. You have to read those words at the end. In fact, when I, I naturally just said, let us pray and realized, oh, that wasn't part of the prayer, but I wasn't arrested, so it was okay. Um, so yes, they're very specific about the kind of parameters around the prayer, but they, when I ended the prayer with um, creator, redeemer, sustainer, which is kind of like the code language, you know, for the Trinity, and they approved it. So I figured, <laughs> you know, good enough. So it was real fun. So thank you all. Oh, not long. So thank you all for, thank you for very much for being here. Thank you for praying for me last week. It was fun. And I look forward to seeing you all next week. Happy All Saints Day.